How's everybody doing this morning? <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well, I'm back. Um, my name is Peter Hartwig. And maybe you're new this week, you don't know anything about what's going on right now, or maybe you've been here almost as long as I have. And you would know that my dad, Pete Hartwig, um, is the lead pastor of this church. And uh, my parents right now, well, they're on their way back at this very moment, but they've been away for a couple weeks. Um, my mom had an undisclosed date, uh, year number birthday on vacation. And this vacation came 10 years later than the promise undisclosed birthday before which it was supposed to come. So uh, that's great. My parents are just gone. They're just gone. Like this is the equivalent of inviting you all over to their house when they're on vacation to have like a middle school party, right? Like I have total free reign. I could do anything. I could tell you any story. I could out any of their marital spats. I could tell you any of the weird medical stuff that's happened. I've got it all. This is all the power. This is all the marbles. All the lights are on and all the music's playing and I have all the chips. But I've also got to be out of here in 28 minutes and 22 seconds. So I can't do all of them, but I will start off with disagreeing with my father. We're in a sermon series about change. Um, and in the, in the first week, my dad mentioned this idea that uh, contexts don't really change people. I don't know. Don't they? So like, uh, do you have a friend that's got like a girlfriend voice on the phone? Like when the girlfriend calls, you can tell. Like when the girlfriend calls, they kind of, they call to change for the girl. Or my mom is a, a like died in the world New Jersey girl. You can take the girl out of New Jersey, but. And when, um, when my relatives call, I know immediately. Because all of a sudden she's saying water instead of water, water, <laughs> stuff like that. Or um, like yesterday, I was in New York City with some friends and I become a different version of myself in New York City who's like very insecure and grimy and sort of like social climby. Do you know what I mean? So people would be like, oh, have you had sushi at Wing Chun in the village? And you're like, have you had sushi at Blue Ribbon Sushi in Soho? Like, I don't do that here. But when I'm in that other context, like I act this other way. So I've been running around all over the place. Recently, um, I am a Master's of Divinity student at Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. In New Jersey, and it's this, you know, little two-street town where there's nothing to do because Princeton undergraduates live in like a petting zoo. So everything they could ever need is on this gorgeous Tudor Gothic quilt patch. So all their social life and everything they need to buy. So if you're a grad student in Princeton, not at the university, the seminary and the university, or different institutions, some Presbyterians walked across the street in 1812 and sat down and founded their own school. So um, I study with progressive Presbyterians. And um, like, it's very different being in that context than if you're one street over, like at the university. And then on Thursday nights, I'm at this church plant, a vineyard church plant uh, that we call Dinky Vineyard, because the Dinky is the train that runs from Princeton to Princeton Junction. It's a tiny little thing, and so is our church plant. So I'm at 
stinky vineyard, and it's really just like 11 of us in a living room praying for each other, asking God to speak. And sometimes we roast chicken because it's important to eat together. And, and if I drive like 10 minutes from the seminary with where like there are paintings of Calvin and if you know him, Carl Barton, B.B. Warfield, and we have this, you know, sheer undecorated chapel and I become a different person when you're with 11 almost strangers, but you all know that all we're here for tonight is to trust each other and find the Holy Spirit doing something. Like when you shift into different contexts, you do kind of change. And you change in response to people. I would know. I'm a pastor's kid. I can grin and bear like anything. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm the world's greatest emotional performer. So great there came a point I was just performing to myself. Like when, when people walk into your life, they do change you. And you react against them or they teach you something. You share life together. You do the, I don't know. So, you know, I've got these 11 people in this living room in Princeton, it's the only church I've never worked at. The pastor's name is Liz. And one week somebody said, um, so when are you gonna start leading worship to me? And Liz, kind of like a bulldog, like bit back and was like, he doesn't work here. Like this is the only church he's never worked in. He's not working at this one. And I was like, wow, yes, thank you. So I work at this church. And I, um, when, when you're in different contexts, with different people, it does change you, actively or reactionary, they share something or there, but it shifts. I wanna to talk today about the change the Holy Spirit makes. Week one, my dad talked about eunuchs, weird. Week two, my dad talked about being Jesus, being with Jesus in the boat. Week three, Pete Bulette was like, admit it, reading all of your mail about the shame stuff. Do you know what I, mean? I watched it on the drive here and it was like, get out of my head, Pete. So I'm the third Pete to preach here in this sermon series. You have to be named Pete to preach here. Don't know if you know that. Pastor Keith's first name is actually Pete. So it's not. It's not. His first name is Keith. But um, you'd think that because he preaches here. I'm amazed that Pete Sorensen hasn't preached here. Or maybe you have. I don't know. Um, I want to talk about the change that the Holy Spirit makes. And the kind of weird thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is a person and a place. Like, he can do that. It's this he slash it can do that. And in the Old Testament, just for fun, the word for spirit is feminine. Ruach is a feminine noun. So in the Old Testament, it's actually the spirit herself. I don't know what to do with it. So like the spirit herself or himself or itself is both a person, like a person of the Trinity, but also a place. So you can meet the Holy Spirit, but you can also be like in the spirit. And the spirit can arrive in the room but this room can also be in the spirit. The spirit provides the person and the context by which God changes us. So one of my favorite uh, New Testament scholars, a guy named Gordon Fee, put it this way. Believers in Christ who are spirit people, believers in Christ who are spirit people first and foremost are variously described as living by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and sowing the Spirit. Ethics, how you ought to live life, for St. Paul is also founded in the Trinity. The Spirit of God conforms the believer into the likeness of Christ in the glory of God. The Spirit is thus the empowering presence of God for living the life 
of God in the present. Fee, who uh, now has Alzheimer's, um, and so he's not producing work anymore, but uh, Fee produced this massive book called God's Empowering Presence. It was a commentary on every time um, the word spirit or spiritual is used in St. Paul, and he titled it God's Empowering Presence, because he would argue that if you resurrected St. Paul from the dead and said, hey, what's the deal with the Holy Spirit? He would say the Holy Spirit is the person of God as the presence of God towards this particular end, empowering the, the empowering presence of God for living the life of God in the present. So that's what I want to talk about, is the change the Holy Spirit makes as person and as context. And one final point before we turn to the scriptures. Um, sometimes this can be hard for people to see, because when familiar things come in unfamiliar forms, it sort of weirds you out. Like, I was an RA at UVA. I have a frillion stories. The story I'm about to tell you usually has three more stories in the three hours attached to it because we thought this kid had killed himself, but his phone had just died in the library and this other guy had to go to the hospital. It was bananas. Anyway, at the end of what I've called my worst night ever as an RA, someone knocks on the door and goes, Abhishek is ingesting a mysterious white powder. Like, over it, I'm over it. So I walk into Abhishek's room and kick down the door, basically, which is hard for me because I'm tiny and also not technically legal for how to act as an RA. And uh, there's Abhishek at his desk with this, this like pile of white powder and this little spoon, and he's going, huh? And I'm in the room. And I maybe didn't say these exact words, but I said, what is that? And he said, it's caffeine powder. And I was like, why? do you have caffeine powder? And he's like, I'm using it to keep me awake. I said, why don't you just drink more espresso? He was like, this is more convenient. I was like, how, how aren't you not going to die if you like, is, is, I have green tea extract to take me off it. I was like, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. And if that is cocaine, this is not my problem when all this comes back to roost. Sometimes when familiar things like, like caffeine coming in unfamiliar porn, form, like straight white powder, you're kind of thrown and you think it might be dangerous or like some parents should get involved or something. A lot of us grew up knowing Jesus or we grew up in a culture that gets vaguely the idea of God. But when you add the Holy Spirit, it's this familiar thing, but in a weird and unfamiliar and possibly dangerous feeling form. So I just want to remind you that as we talk about the Holy Spirit and what he, she, it, there does, that it's God. It's the same God. It's not less of God. It's not part of God. It's not a different God. It's just God. It's the same God revealed in Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. So when we say spirit, it's not the weird hovery thing, or we say spirit is not some odd shamanic thing. It's not like Christianity's version of crystal healing or something. I don't know. It's just God. And it's the God who becomes present in Jesus. That's who we're talking about. The text that I'd like to use to talk about the change the Holy Spirit makes is the book of Galatians. Um, you can turn there now. We're going to start in ch at the end of chapter 2 if you have a Bible and you're into it. But Galatians um, is an odd little book. We don't actually know who the Galatians are 
Um, in in St. Paul's day, who wrote the book, there are ethnic Galatians, but there's also a geographical region called Galatia, and we don't know precisely where the letter went. Um, we uh, also, but, but what we do know, we also don't know the date precisely. It's probably in the mid-50s uh, AD, in the middle of Paul's career. But what we do know is this weird thing is happening in the churches in Galatia, in which there are these people who Paul calls the Judaizers. Sometimes we translate it as the teachers. And these seem to be people who are making a particular theological argument in, in the churches Paul founded amongst the Galatians. That argument is an argument about how to stay Christian. Now, this might sound like a little theological argument that happens a couple thousand years ago, but I have been at this church and other churches long enough to know that we have this argument basically every week. And the argument goes like this. We know that Jesus makes you a Christian, like you get in the front door with Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus and you say the little prayer, then you're in. And you're great, awesome. And uh, you're out of hell or whatever. And um, then we start looking around and go, what do we do now? Like, I'm into Jesus. Jesus is great. And then people go like, well, you pray and read your Bible. You're like, oh, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. But what do I do for the other 22 hours of the day? And the, the Judaizers, or the teachers, are people who are suggesting that, yeah, 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 you come to God through Jesus, but if you're going to stay, you have to change your life in a lot of ways, namely circumcision and possibly keeping kosher. You have to take on all of the legal practices of Judaism before Jesus. You actually, Jesus gets you into the flock, but if you're going to stay in the flock, you, you've got to... You gotta, you know, raise your standards here. You have to get circumcised, which is horrible, and you have to observe certain celebrations, and you have to, if you're gonna be in, you gotta be in. You gotta get here by 10:30, and you can't park in my spot, and you have to make sure you talk to at least two people at the front. You sign up for city serve. You have to do that, and if you don't do that, the doors are right there, and two over there, one over there, and one over there. So, and Paul, Paul's freaking out. Now, usually, you'd think if you were a good Christian, that you'd freak out if somebody walked into your church and was lowering the moral standard. Usually that's what we freak out about as Christians. Like somebody, things blow up nationally when someone comes in and they lower the moral standard we're used to. But Paul, Paul loses his mind when somebody walks in and raises the moral standard. When somebody comes in and says, no, 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 you have to get up here in order to be with Jesus. Like Jesus met you down there, but you have to be up here now. And what Paul is going to do is make an argument about how to stay Christian. I'm going to give this to you right now. The answer is following the Spirit. It's not coming to a new moral standard. It's not practicing certain things. It's not even reading your Bible and praying at first. It's about living life with the Holy Spirit. That is how you stay Christian. So, I have... Five things from this passage that I think you can see the Holy Spirit doing. I'm sure there's about 12, but we'll just do five. So, starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says this, But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also amongst the sitters, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. 
For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's your basic cross sermon, right? Jesus dies, he fulfills the law, we're brought into the flock. That's, we're all up to speed on that. And then he starts getting angry. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn from you just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? I don't know about you, but I think that's the wrong question. Shouldn't the question be, did you come to believe in Jesus by doing the law or by hearing the word? That's not what he asked. <laughs> what Paul asks is, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There are five things I think the Holy Spirit does in the next couple chapters of Galatians. This is the first I see. The Spirit expands our theological vision. Most of us are really good at crossing Jesus. We say we're good at God's love, but we're not actually good at God's love. And then we have a kind of spirit deficiency. But Paul, it seems, can go straight from cross to spirit like that. Like justification, salvation, cross, Jesus, spirit. They just make sense to him. Like he can do them. The American church, and I would know because I'm a professional theologian, super lucrative, by the way, if... Like, the American church isn't good at this. Like, we're so theologically stilted, we can't do Jesus cross spirit all in the... But that's what Paul's leading us into. And he keeps putting the spirit in places that if you and I were left to our own devices and we were writing the email, we probably wouldn't put them. Like, when I talk to people who are doubting their faith, usually I go like, well, you believe in Jesus? Like, you're in the camp. Like, you think this thought, you know. Here's the list of things we tend to think, and you think most of those. But that's not what Paul says. Paul puts the Spirit right up front in the middle of the Christian life. You began by the Spirit. How did you get the Spirit? By hearing the The Spirit is everywhere. I think that one change the Holy Spirit makes for people like us is to expand our theological vision. We get a bigger view of what God is doing, and when we look at the Spirit... We can see God doing things that we would miss because the Spirit often is not as central to our theology as it is to Paul's. Um, what you can also see, I think the second thing in this passage, and this is, the larger pas this is the larger point of Galatians, is that the Spirit makes the law unnecessary. So you're going to get into the Christian faith with Jesus in the Spirit, and then the the teachers, the Judaizers go, and then you need to start keeping the law. You need to do that. And, and Protestants, which a lot of us are, 
All the theological nerds in here are like, yes, he said Protestantism. <laughs> the Protestants were bad at this because we think that what Paul is saying is the law is dirty, rotten, bad, and gross, and it feels horrible, and we need to get rid of it. But that's not what he's saying. What Paul says in this passage is, if, if you are given the Spirit by hearing with faith righteousness no longer comes by the law, the law becomes insufficient for being righteous. Righteousness, the life that God has for us, comes by moving with the Spirit, having heard the word about Jesus and, like, believing it. Like, you hear about Jesus and you think it's real, and then, and then instead of going to the law to, like, grab the stable place to tell you what to do, you just start asking the Spirit to lead you. It's not that the law is bad. It's just that it's now unnecessary. So this is the way Gordon Feed describes what I think Paul is saying here. He says, at issue is not a spirit-flesh struggle within the believer's heart, but the sufficiency of the spirit over against the law and the flesh as God's replacement of the former, an antidote to the latter. When you get in the Christian church, you start immediately asking, hey, what's my life What's it supposed to look like now? I don't just telling you, like with Paul behind me, the only sufficient answer to that, like the only thing that's going to do everything you need done and lead you all the places you need to go and make you the kind of person you need to be, it is not a set of rules. It is the spirit or bust. So uh, my assumption would be that if you were living in that, it would be a lot of fun. So if you want to turn to chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, Paul continues his argument. I know I'm jumping around, but continues his argument and says this, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. That is, don't let yourselves get tricked back into the law. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is then obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. This is really tough. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul thinks, Paul sees a community that has felt itself weighed by a moral burden that's been like plagued by questions of who's in and who's out, who's keeping the law, who's not keeping the law. And he says that the Spirit has come instead to set us free. When you're in the spirit, there's a whole host of questions you don't have to worry about. Like you're just free to follow God. I think at heart, most of us, if we're being honest, do want that. And sometimes you're raised in church and you're just taught systematically to doubt yourself. Like we are all sinners. Trust me, I know. I've been me a long time. But I also know that sometimes we're systematically taught to think that we're bad people in order to make God necessary Instead of wondering if maybe what's really going on is the Spirit frees us to actually desire God. 
like maybe at root, not your strongest desire, but your deepest desire really is for the God who saves the world. And what if instead of a program of trying to figure out if you're okay, you could just meet him and follow him? Like you were just free to do that. Thoreau says that the vast majority of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I think that's probably true. And I honestly think the Christian answer to that is life with the Spirit is freedom. Now, clearly, if you had a bunch of free people running around doing whatever they want, it would cause you a modicum of anxiety, right? Because people are horrible. And so the question is, how is the Spirit going to set people free without creating, like, total anarchy? And the answer comes in verses 5, 13 to 26. It says this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is filled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. If you can actually do that, if you can actually love your neighbor as yourself, you've got the law down. So we need a way to do that. We need a way to actually love our neighbors as ourselves. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. I hate that translation. I hate it so, so much. It's a terrible translation. You get this in all these English translations where it says, and then the spirit desires these things, and the flesh desires these things, and they're in conflict. That is not what the Greek says. The Greek passage here is, this is the only time in all of Greek literature this phrase is ever used. The, the, the term is epithume kata, which means desires against or desires at. It's, it's never used anywhere else. It's a very odd passage. Paul is trying to stretch Greek to get it to describe what he's seeing. It's not that the spirit has his wish, wish list and the flesh has its wish list and they're not the same list. It's a war. It's a war of love. Like the spirit desires at the flesh and the flesh desires at the spirit and you've got to pick a side. The reason we can trust ourselves to be free is because we can follow the spirit into the battle of love. Like if you just, whoa, if you just follow the spirit as it's desiring at the flesh and you're aligned with the spirit, you'll just fulfill the law. Like you'll just do it because you'll just be loving people. The spirit is the way forward for the Christian life through the internal conflicts that we get when we try and raise the moral standard. The spirit can actually morally transform you, like can actually do it. Left to my own devices, I'd probably be a bad guy. Without Jesus, I wouldn't know I was a bad guy, but I'd just be a bad guy. But with the spirit, I can be like a legit good guy. I have some friends that now think I'm a good listener. <laughs> Don't know when that happened. Or like they feel like they can trust me. Mm -mm. I didn't think I could trust me for a long time. The spirit can actually transform you. And it transforms you in order to put you in community. Like to put you in relationship with people. Ain't no good having perfectly moral people up on a pedestal. Like what good are good and loving people stuck in the museum of religion? We don't need any more statues of saints. The Louvre is perfectly stuffed. 
What we need are people who can love like God where people are. So if you love your neighbor as yourself because you're following the Spirit, because you don't need the law, because you met Jesus, and if you do all that crazy stuff, go get friends. Like, the Spirit leads us into this relationship. So um, in order to illustrate this, I have retranslated the passage in a way that I think will make considerable sense. Can we get that up? Oh, wow. Don't I look nice back there? Okay, so Greek has a way of saying you, but in the plural, which we don't have in English, because it's either you singular or you plural. The best we've got is y'all. So I've translated it y'all everywhere, because what I want to do is bring out how communal this vision is. It's all because y'all were called to freedom, fam, which is the word brothers, Adelphoi, only don't let that freedom be a chance for the flesh. And the flesh is capitalized, and this is a whole other sermon, because it's not actually a part of you. It's a thing that's trying to hunt you down. The flesh, capital F, but through love becomes slaves to each other. After all, the whole law gets summed up in just one sentence. You will love the ones around you the way you love yourself. But if y'all snap at each other and devour each other, be careful that y'all are not totally consumed by each other. I'm telling y'all, Walk in the spirit instead, and y'all will not desire, uh, will not let the desire of the flesh become a reality. After all, the flesh is desiring against the spirit, and the spirit is desiring against the flesh. It's because they're total opposites to each other, to make sure that y'all will not just do whatever y'all want. Rather, if y'all are led by the spirit, y'all are not under the law, don't need to be anyway. You see, the things the flesh does are easy to spot. Any number of things, like sex craziness and dysfunction and being super extra and thinking that anything but God is going to give you real life and searching for spiritual power, hating each other, straight up fighting each other, totally unchecked emotion, being aggressive, click wars, broken relationships, bitterness that's settled in, jealousy, substance dependence, folks who think the only good times are when you're turned, should have said drunk, not that cool, and stuff like that. I told you before, I'll tell you again, whoever has a pattern of doing all this is not going to inherit God's kingdom. This is a communal vision that you don't need technical Greek terms to get, like drunkenness and wantonness and slander and envy. You know it. You have friends, I hope. And if you don't, this might be why. The Spirit is trying to turn us into the kind of people that can live with people. So... The five things I think the Spirit does, I think, can we get the last slide up? It gives us a wider theological point of view. It makes the law unnecessary. It gives us genuine freedom. It gives us real moral transformation, and it sets us in community. If you are bored, your theological view is too small. If you are held under the burden of the law, if your moral life is hunting you down, if you feel yourself caged, if you know yourself to be a bad person or you're lonely, the Spirit's for you. Bored, bondaged, lonely, evil people. That's who the Spirit's out for. If you want in, all you have to do is believe in Jesus and pray with friends. I know, crazy, you can roast a chicken if you want, but believe in Jesus and pray with friends. This is just a closing thought. 
Um, the letter of Galatians is about how to stay Christian. It's about staying. I've really never left home. I'm a good pastor's kid. I didn't get into that much trouble. My parents have no grandchildren, you know, that kind of thing. And um, it wasn't until I was about 21, I started to realize that I was angry I had always stayed. The older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, he never leaves. He knows it's better to stay at home and he's furious. He wants it to be better to leave, but he knows it's not. So when, when the younger brother comes back, like when the spirit brings somebody new to church, he's just angry. He's just angry. I've had a lot of conversations with people in the past couple weeks, those of us who have been in, a, in the church a long time, and we are angry that we've stayed. We know it's where we're supposed to be, but we'd rather it's not. And so when somebody comes into the church, we say what the older brother says, which is effectively, I don't know who that is. They've had all their fun, and now they just get to come back, and you have never celebrated me. The older brother is uncelebrated, angry, and incredibly moral. If you're that way, if you are angry that you've stayed, the spirit is, is trying to do something different for you this morning, I think. And uh, I'll be down at the front. We should pray. If there's a whole flock, then the prayer team will join me, I guess, just as a final word. So why don't we stand and pray, and then we'll end in worship. Know that prayer can be as simple as this, just to invite the Spirit to help us connect with the Father we've walked away from and find the life we've walked away from. And so it's that simple this morning. And I invite prayer um, team members and life group leaders that are willing to go to the aisles now and be ready to receive people who, who want to pray. Um, and just ask. Lord, um, I need your spirit. I want life with you. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you know, they didn't know how to pray either. And they said, teach us. You know, John taught his disciples, teach us. He told them a story about a father that gives good gifts to his children. And at the end of that, he said, he'll even give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So if you're longing for what Peter described today. It's in the asking, and you can ask right now and invite the Spirit to change your life. Let's begin that prayer as the worship team gets ready to lead us in worship, and then you can make your way to the aisles if you want to continue that prayer with somebody else. Father, we come to you humbly, aware, Lord, that uh, we've often and, and repeatedly made a mess of life, that there's this war that wages within us, Lord, and among us and around us. Lord, we want the life that's truly life. And Lord, we want your spirit. So we come to you to ask for an outpouring that we might live by your spirit. And Lord, as we pray this prayer with friends, with brothers and sisters, we pray you just hear our hearts genuinely crying out to you, Lord that we might be led by and filled by, that we might bear fruit by your spirit. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name.